0: this is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Taylor Killian is a PhD student at the University of Toronto and the Vector Institute. He works as an intern at Google Brain, and in his own words, is an aspiring researcher slash scientist. Taylor Killian, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: You know, I'm, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk and share uh, what I'm working on and also how I've gotten to where I am.
0: Super excited to chat with you. So how do you describe your research interests?
1: It's a great question. Uh, it's It's been under constant evolution, but in a directed fashion. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity quite early in my adult life to... Um, to serve as a religious representative for my church uh, where I spent a full two years talking with people about my beliefs and sharing, uh, you know, what they mean to me. And I was always fascinated by how people received that information and what they did with it. Um, And, you know, some people would act what I felt like were counter to what they proposed to be their beliefs versus those who acted in line with their beliefs. And there's a lot of uncertainty in people's decision-making. And um, after finishing that uh, time, uh, I returned to my undergraduate institution and thought I wanted to do behavioral science, but in an analytical way, because I was, you know, very interested in math and I felt like I was good at it. Um, but probably fortunately for me, they didn't have a behavioral science uh Track in the psychology department at, at my university, um, and so I was forced at the time to put sort of decision making on the back burner, um, just as I progressed through my uh, undergrad. Um, but after after that, and and graduating and getting a job and being a computational scientist, that that question kept coming back. You know, how do we make decisions in opportunities uh, or in, in in situations where there is a high level of uncertainty or where we might have some prior context. And um, a lot of those questions in my own mind uh, came from sort of a, a neuroscience or behavioral science background. But, you know, I, I'm quite analytical in in, in in thinking and, you know, given my limited exposure to the world, I thought that that had to be within applied math. What is there within applied math to study um, that has to do with decision making? And I was fortunate to get... Uh, uh, the opportunity to pursue a master's degree um, at Harvard while I was working. Um, and I approached a faculty member and said, Hey, I'm really interested in applied math, but about decision making. And she says, Oh, that sounds like reinforcement learning. And uh, I have some projects along those lines. Are you interested in healthcare? And uh, my father is a doctor. And I had sworn to never be a medical doctor in my life, uh, <laughs> just given the stress that I observed in his life. Um, and it didn't seem like uh, that was the path for me. But I said, yeah, you know, I'm interested in healthcare. I think that it's a valuable um, area to be. You know, pursuing research uh, solutions to some of the major problems. And, and that kind of became, became the introduction to where I am now as a researcher who is trying to develop stable and robust methods within reinforcement learning as motivated by or applied to healthcare problems. And so all of that was to, I think prepare a, a quick answer. I apologize for kind of uh, editorializing a little bit, but uh, a quick answer is about what my particular research interests are is you know within the con- construct of decision making under uncertainty, are there ways that we can develop robust, reliable, or generalizable uh, approaches within reinforcement learning um, in highly uncertain or partially observed settings?
0: Awesome. So this is your episode. I encourage you to editorialize all you want. That's that's totally bonus <laughs> for us as listeners. Yeah. We want to know what you're thinking. This is great. From looking at your Google Scholar page, you you have some, some work in physics um, related to flu- fluid dynamics and then machine learning with radio sensors and then some core ML stuff like capsule networks. So did you have uh, like different chapters in the past where you focused on these different things and is, is your current direction the future for you?
1: I, I, I really struggle with the word chapters because that kind of there's a connotation that the door's closed. In some of these circumstances the door is definitely closed. Like I'm probably never going to return to working in experimental fluid dynamics and a, a lot of uh, which I did during my undergraduate as a research in, uh, research assistant uh, in the applied in computational math program that I was uh, designed for myself. I had the fortune of working with Tad Truscott who's now at Utah State University who pioneered really fascinating imaging techniques for experimental fluid dynamics and he needed people to help develop computational models. Um, And I had the interest but also ability to join him and that prepared me in a way to take the job that I was ultimately offered at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, which is where I did more radar processing, um, because that is the heritage of Lincoln Laboratories, that it was one of the early inventors and adopters of um, radio magnetic frequency uh, for sensing purposes, is that they have a heritage in the, that comes from the MIT Radiation Laboratory that spun out shortly after World War II into what is now known as Lincoln laboratory. And um, I was not fully aware of the type of work that I'd be getting myself into uh, coming into electrical engineering predominant uh, business. But it, it was great. And I learned a lot. And Uh, that stage of my career really taught me a lot about what I was interested in and what I wanted to do. And I was really fortunate that I was given the opportunity as part of my employment to return to school, um, to really flesh out what those research and professional interests are. And after I finished my degree, I needed to return to work full time to fulfill my obligations to them. And that's where we kind of were forced to do more low hanging uh, fruit from a government perspective is that they didn't quite have this appetite for sequential decision-making in the way that I was proposing. Um, And so we were looking at model robustness for vision uh, type applications. And uh, that's where the capsule network work came
0: from. Cool. Okay. So, so looking at your um, health related papers, some of the ones that I looked at, I get the sense that, uh, that you really do dig, dig really deep into some diverse angles on this on this topic in machine learning for health. Can, can you tell us how you think about your, your research roadmap going forward? Like, Do you have a very specific paths in mind um, or are you doing a lot of exploration? I
1: think that the way that I at least have diagnosed my inability to get on a very specific path is that there's too many good ideas out there that need to be solved or it's just like there's fascinating problems that I see. I mean, uh, let let me backtrack a little bit that um, my training um, from the earliest days of my aspirational scientific career um, have been in interdisciplinary settings where I come with a set of expertise or, you know, growing expertise and I'm working with experts from a different area. And we come together to solve a common problem. And I, that's been a standard for my entire career from back when I was an undergrad through my employment to today uh, is that I find it un fortunate when people refuse to work in interdisciplinary fashions, and I think, naturally, machine learning uh, and AI in general is an interdisciplinary field, and I'm really grateful to be a part of it. That is probably not to say that I don't have specific directions in mind. Uh, A lot of the diversity in my research has come through just taking uh, taking advantage of the opportunities right ahead of me or working on that good idea that just can't be put away. More specifically, within a healthcare context, as I I mentioned earlier, one of my core research interests is in generalization and robustness. And currently, uh, machine learning models applied to healthcare problems are not robust, and they are not reliable, uh, much less generalizable. Uh, And one of the core research focuses that I have uh, throughout my PhD, but I think it will it's it's a big enough problem that I think it's going to be a hopefully hallmark of my career is developing, you know, suitable methods or model frameworks that allow for, you know, distributed processing, but also model transfer between hospitals. You know, I have family that live in very rural settings where uh, their access to healthcare technology is quite limited. And um, my professional career has brought me to large urban uh, settings where we have research hospitals and um, fantastic opportunities uh, for for our health care, and I would hate for any technology I develop to not be accessible and available to my family uh, that live in you know less opportune areas and um, so that is one of the major directions that I'm going for in in my career is you know can we develop things that can operate reliably outside of the environment that they were trained in? and um along the lines there's little little battles or fires that you have to put out along the way uh you, know, you have to develop a way to handle uncertainty you have to handle partial observability or um you know, changing uh action sets or changing feature sets you know, depending on the particular application within healthcare uh you might get very diverse uh types of distribution shift, uh, between these environments. And, um, so along the way, there's always going to be some really good idea in a collaborative fashion that I'm going to be working on. Um, but ultimately the direction is, you know, making reinforcement learning reliable and functional within a off-policy or partially observed setting. And um, so from like a technical standpoint, that's probably where I sit within RL, but I'm pretty open to lots of different things.
0: So from my point of view, you seem to be able to, you have this amazing ability to innovate with a real breadth of different methods, um, kind of the opposite of the one-trick pony. So, do you, how do you how do you balance learning uh, new things versus applying what you already know? Like, how how did you come to this breadth and and I'm talking both on the ML side and 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 maybe the health side too.
1: Yeah, um, you know, first it's very generous of you to say that I've been innovative. I think it's more desperate than anything is that you know you come to a problem and you have an idea of how it should work and. Um, since i've been relatively new to this field like i didn't know anything about machine learning in, until i started my master's degree um and you know so that's uh thinking back now four years ago and i had very rudimental skills in programming at that time and so i've approached research in a sponge-like manner you know sort of just trying to draw insight from lots of different areas um, and you know, I think that in order to solve some of these more challenging problems, we need to look at the ways that things have worked other in other places. Uh, from the healthcare perspective, and I think that this is important for anybody who's trying to apply any machine learning, much less reinforcement learning, to the real world, is that you have to talk with experts. You have to understand what they've done and what the relevant problems are. Uh, It's an unfortunate crutch of ours in the research community to sort of pay lip service to an application to motivate our work and give it some meaning. Um, And and I, I do appreciate the efforts by my colleagues within the Reinforcement Learning community that when they talk about off-policy reinforcement learning uh, in particular, uh, and they they motivate it by, oh, this could be useful for healthcare, Um, that's good and that's important. And we need to make strides in some of these important technical problems uh, and the challenges that we face with them. But if we're doing that in a vacuum and in isolation without knowledge of what the actual practices of the doctors who would be using the technology, then we're wasting our time and we're wasting their time and we're developing solutions and putting hype around them that um, if adopted would potentially be harmful and quite dangerous. And I think that I think it's important to recognize our own limitations, but then also pick up the expertise and the best practices of those who we want to work with. And, And I think by synthesizing the best practices of various fields, you know, uh, I struggle with imposter syndrome like anybody and it's, probably made worse by the fact that I try to do the synthesis, is that I don't feel like I'm getting to be good at any one thing, but rather, you know, and this is in my mind, my doubts telling me that I'm becoming mediocre at a lot of things, or at least knowledgeable about what might be out there um, without having any dedicated experience. But that's that's partially why I chose to get a PhD is to be able to slow down a little bit and do an in-depth focus on a particular area of research so that I could become uh, proficient and good at that uh, area of research and then expand as I move forward in my career.
0: So can we talk about the health and and clinical setting in a little more depth for, for people who may have, you you may maybe understand RL, but have focused on Atari or OpenAI Gym. Can you help us understand and appreciate what is, really different here about our all in health in general and and in a clinical setting
1: yeah um i've been asked this question a lot um just by colleagues and friends and i think it's really important to preface the comments that or my my comments that i'll give in response to the question uh by the uh, the motivation i have for doing healthcare research as a reinforcement learning Researcher is that the majority of open problems within reinforcement learning, such as sparse rewards or uh, credit assignment, or you know the exploration exploitation trade uh, off, off policy RL, and the list kind of goes on and on in terms of these big open challenges or problems within the reinforcement learning community. All of those are present in spades in the healthcare problems, and uh healthcare is characterized you know, at least in the way that i observe it as an inherently sequential process where an expert decision maker with their best understanding of the setting of the environment the patient of um the multiple patients that they're seeing with their various com- confounding conditions and symptoms they take that information and make the best decision they can. And then they observe the response, and then they adjust, adapt, and try something again. And they do this, hopefully toward the patient improving and uh, leaving the hospital or having a stable and healthy life if it's in a less acute setting, um, or in in, in in sort of the unfortunate circumstances where, um, you know, the, the clinician is unable to Provide the care adequate to have the patient survive. And in some cases, it's unavoidable, right? Is that, uh, patients and individuals' health, uh, decays to a point where there's not much that can be done. And, uh, the, the standard of care at that point changes quite drastically. And, um, it's remarkable to see the types of approaches that clinicians take, um, when they hit these, uh, the, these sort of dead end type, uh, situations within, uh, healthcare. Um, but in, 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 terms of more directly answering your question, how does it differ from your traditional RL, you know, simulator based, uh, research? And the, the major difference is that we have a fixed data set. We are unable to explore and we're unable to do online evaluation of policies that we learn uh, from this fixed data. And so that opens up a big can of worms in terms of off-policy evaluation and off-policy reinforcement learning in general. Um, and... Uh, this is a largely unsolved area of research. There's some fantastic efforts that have been going on um, from a variety of groups throughout the world uh, looking at off-policy evaluation and ways to improve it. Um, there's particularly, I'd like to highlight like the, the work that's been coming out from Finale Doshi Velez's group with Emma Brunskill as a collaborator, as well as Nathan Callis from Cornell Tech um that like the these two groups among others. I mean there's significant effort uh you know from David Sontag uh, for example and other you know I I could I could list a lot of names who are looking at uh off policy evaluation and making it stable so that we know in these settings where we cannot explore and we cannot evaluate new policies online, you know, how reliable are the the outcomes that we are suggesting. That we can uh, achieve with reinforcement learning, and that's uh, under a traditionalist sense of you know we are learning policies to suggest actions. Um, there's an alternative approach, however, that uh, I've been investigating in collaboration with Maddie Fatemi from Microsoft Research, based in Montreal, uh, of looking at it in in sort of a inverse direction is using this sequential framework where we can distill long-term outcomes to our current decision can we choose which actions to avoid instead Um, and we have some preliminary work that is under review uh, along these lines right now and it's it's sort of making the statement of this is how rl and healthcare is different is that we can't take this traditionalist sense because we can't explore. We, you know, we can't experiment uh, with actions, but we can use the same framework to describe what's going on and to maybe identify optimal behavior from the observed experts, you know, the the clinicians who have helped generate the data that we use. Um, and, and and so, I, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of belaboring the point a little bit here. But uh, the major difference is just in data access as well as uh, being able to test and evaluate the solutions that you find.
0: So in Atari or OpenAI Gem, reward is really simple. But here, how do do we think of reward here in a health setting? Like, are we trying to get the best expected, like average health outcome across the population? Or should we be trying to avoid the worst...
1: That opens up a really interesting can of worms when you talk about expected health outcomes because, uh, there's a plethora of work, uh, within the ML fairness community that shows that expected outcomes is incredibly biased and unfair towards marginalized or minority communities. And this is particularly challenging in healthcare. So there's some work a couple of years ago that Irene Chen published with, uh, David Sontag out of MIT, where she looked at, you know, where the discrimination within a healthcare decision framework would be coming from. And she looked at a cross section of different, uh, groups and peoples within the MIMIC data set, um, based on this expected positive outcome and found that women and, uh, minorities, you know, racial minorities were provided with much worse uh, expected outcomes because they are not adequately accounted for uh, in the training and so it's it's difficult to say that a reward in healthcare from an rl perspective could be sort of this mean or median type performance, and this is where I think the holy grail that we're all striving for within the machine learning for healthcare community is personalized medicine and looking at an individual by individual basis. you know, Can we provide adequate care and treatment selection that is tailored to a particular situation or a particular patient condition? And um, the motivation, or at least how that informs the design of rewards that we approach is, you know, it's, it's better to use hard and fast binary uh, rewards. You know, for, for a hospital acute care setting, that's a pretty easy thing to define, um, you know, whether somebody survives and is discharged or is allowed to leave the hospital, or they unfortunately expire uh, and succumb to their symptoms. And, you know, so that binary plus one, minus one reward is pretty easy to define, but Uh, The other types of reward definition that you might find, you if you're looking at a long-term care scenario, or somebody who's trying to manage diabetes, for example, um, you know that reward design is going to be largely informed by the particular problem that they're working on. Uh, So, like back to this diabetes example, you might want to maximize the time. That the patient is in a healthy glucose range, or minimize the times that they go hypotensive or um, hypotonic in their in, the, in their glucose levels, where they're they're having you know too much blood sugar, which is quite dangerous, right? And and so the, you, you will design your rewards based on the particular problem. And a, a good example of somebody who did this and, and it has done significant work looking at defining rewards is Niranjani Prasad, uh, who just recently graduated from Princeton. Um, in her work with her advisor, Barbara Engelhart, is that uh, one paper that I have in mind is uh, Niranjani looked at removing a patient from a ventilator, something that we're all very aware of right now in this age of uh, the coronavirus pandemic is that uh, you know, when is the appropriate time to remove, Somebody from a ventilator, and she designed a very specific reward function that helped describe the clinical problem of removing somebody too early or too late from a ventilator, and and, uh, you know that that. It, it, she has some follow up work that she recently published this summer, um, b- looking at you know what is an admissible reward in in a healthcare problem, and uh, does it cover the right physiological uh, characteristics of the problem? Uh, is it r- attainable from a Clinical practice perspective, et cetera, and and, and so it, the, I think the short answer is it's it's nuanced. You know, the reward definition within healthcare can be as simple as binary outcome versus some continuous measure of a long-term process.
0: Okay, cool. And then, but just a little bit more on that, I was I guess what what's not clear to me is if you have a distribution of outcomes, like like let's say in a long-term care setting, you know, your policy could be shifting the mean. Of that distribution but it also could be shifting the um changing the variance um so different policies might have different types of tails so i just wonder if there's if that's something that that you think about in terms of uh do we do a uh, like a maximum thing like trying to make the worst the best possible worst case uh outcome for the for the population versus the 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 more expected the more average I get to your point about fairness of different the different subgroups, and I think that question applies to them too no matter how you split it
1: yeah you know i i have i'm not, I'm not like super aware of this approach being uh, undertaken within a healthcare context yet um, I know that there is some work within the causal causal inference literature applied to healthcare with a machine learning focus, um, that have been doing this, you know, so like some of the work from Susan Murphy has been thinking about this. Um, but I would also point to some interesting work that's come out this summer from Sergey Levin's group that is doing this max min approach to Q learning where uh, the, their algorithm, uh, is uh, is titled "Conservative Q Learning," which is very creative, and I appreciate that. Um, but then, then there's an another there's another there's another paper that just just came out like a couple weeks ago from uh, K. Mark who's a friend of mine who's uh, been working as a student researcher at Google with uh, Shengu and it's uh, EMAC is the name of their approach where they take this expected positive reward in this off-policy sense, and then they marginalize against some of the subgroup-type challenges. And it, their, their setting is, well, both Sergey Levin's paper and this EMAC paper um, is looking at uh, robotics uh, spe- specifically, but some of the characteristics could potentially be applied to some of these long-term um you know, uh, continuous type problems within a healthcare setting for sure. But um, they, there really hasn't been a whole lot that I'm aware of that has been explicitly looking at uh, domain shift within the expected rewards um, as res- as a response to uh, op- optimal or optimizing policy,
0: right? Thanks, those are great tips. Okay, so, so what about model-based RL in this setting? Um, my impression is that a lot of model-based RL is looking at domains that are really quite deterministic. And either they have no noise or maybe they have very simple noise. Um, so how do models differ in, in these health settings? Like, are they still useful? Um, maybe they're useful in different ways. Like, is it possible to, to do planning with models in settings like this and in noisy environments like this?
1: Um, I think that that's an open research question that's yet to be determined. Uh, some of my prior work has been within model-based RL, uh, within healthcare, where we're trying to you know, adapt. I, I, we're going to talk about this later, so I won't get too far into it, but we try to adapt a model based on local features of the, the, the task or the environment. Um, but in general, I think that there's a danger in thinking that model-based RL is the solution. Um, to I, you know, I have continually found myself thinking this, uh, and I think that it has its its use cases for sure. But a, like you pointed out, a lot of those use cases are in more simplistic settings where you have deterministic uh, transition behavior. Um, you know, very low noise environments and uh, extrapolating to a healthcare scenario, you know, know, what what is your model of, right? Like how well calibrated can a model be of the human body? And we know so little about it, you know, even with the centuries of medical research that have uh, produced a lot of great understanding and insight about you know, medical practice, but then also just our physiology, um, there's still a lot that we don't know. And, um, you know, in model-based RL, the performance of your policy is largely driven by the accuracy of your model, or at least how well it can describe the environment around you. And there have been uh, papers in in the recent past, you know, under the imitation learning uh, framework, um that look at you know what happens if you have a suboptimal model or a suboptimal demonstrator but in like when you add additional layers of complexity such as non-determinism in the transition statistics or uh you going full off policy you that a lot of those solutions don't really work that well
0: so let's move on to hidden parameter mdps this topic is related to your master's thesis is that right
1: yeah, yeah. So the hip MDP was the core foundation of my master's thesis. You know, I, I was fortunate to uh be able to repurpose the paper we published um on it as my master's thesis, um which is with additional uh explanatory introduction chapters about, you know, Gaussian processes and Bayesian neural networks. But um yeah, the hip MDP it's it's something that I really enjoy talking about because it one means a lot to me it was the first like real research project that I was able to start and finish uh, as a machine learning researcher um, and it's been I mean the fact that we got uh, published it makes me feel at least that it was successful uh, and that other people have been building on top of it is another way to I guess deem it, in my eyes that it's been successful
0: So what is a hip MDP? And and why is it useful and interesting?
1: You know George Conardaris, who is our collaborator on this project and one of the originators of the hip MDP with uh, Finale uh, as my advisor at Harvard. It, yeah, he might not like me saying this, but uh, you know I, I view the hip MDP as an abstraction of the a POMDP, where given a family of related uh, MDPs or tasks, where the major differentiation is the a perturbation in how the transition dynamics are observed. Um, the MDP parameterizes that net variation in the transition dynamics because if you can accurately or correctly prescribe what the individual MDP or individual tasks transition dynamics are, you should be able to optimally solve that problem given prior um, observed behavior from other uh, tasks within that same family. And so without, as a illustrative example, if you've learned to write with a pen, you can most likely write with any other pen that you pick up, no matter how heavy it is, no matter what the tip is like, you know, as long as it has ink, you'll likely be able to pick it up and write it. And that's because our body and our mind have been trained among like to handle these types of different variations where a reinforcement learning agent hasn't necessarily. Right. And it's not necessarily robust to slight perturbations in the weight of an object or how uh, you know, the mechanics of a moving arm might change if the tolerances on a motor are off by a little bit. Um, and, and so. What we proposed, or at least what was originally proposed uh, in their original paper that was uh, put on archive in 2013 and finally published in 2016, um, was that if you can filter or uh, estimate uh, among all of the prior observations of this family of tasks and use them to find something that's similar to what you're observing now and parameterize it that way, then you should be able to accelerate your learning in the current task or the current framework. And so um, my work uh, during my master's degree was trying to make that approach scalable and more robust. Because, uh, as, as I said, they, they used a filtering procedure um, that was provided at least the prior over that filtering procedure was seeded through an Indian buffet process, which uh, is really difficult to scale. And uh, at least in, in in the setting that they were using to establish uh, basis functions over the transition dynamics that they're observing. Um, and, and so one of the insights that Finale and George came up with and proposed to me um, when I was starting the project was, you know, can we take these filtering weights that are being used to linearly combine these learned you know, basis functions of our transition statistics, can we take those weights and use them as input to a parametric model? Uh, or uh, in, in the original setting was can we use them as input to a Gaussian process? Because they were still interested in sort of these uh, you know, non-parametric statistical basis functions at the time. Um, we found that GPs aren't a really great setting, or at least at the understanding that we had of them at that time, uh, you know, this is late 2016, um, that it was better to maybe move into you know a probabilistic framework that we still wanted to be able to do inference over these estimated you know uh, hidden parameters that would connect the family of tasks together, but. Still be somewhat scalable uh, to higher dimension problems, but also with more data. And so that's where we replaced the Gaussian process uh, with a Bayesian neural network um, to help uh, be a stand-in transition model that we could then optimize based on the individual tasks that we were observing by uh, function of these hidden parameters. And so I, I feel like I've been meandering a little bit. So the the hip MDP in summary is a method by which we can describe um, small perturbations in observed dynamics between related tasks. Um, and and so from a healthcare perspective, this is uh, you know a task would be uh, you treating a patient from a cohort that all have you know uh, AIDS. For example, you know, that was a simulated problem that we uh, addressed in our paper is that when you uh, observe some new patient, you know, what about their physiology can you learn from their observed response to the medication that you give? And can that be used then to help inform the type of medication that you want to give them in the future? Uh, and this was done, at least within this construct of hidden parameter markup decision processes, by estimating and optimizing the hidden parameters for that individual patient. Um, And then after we solve the problem for that one patient, um, we would take the observed statistics and these hidden parameters and keep them uh, along with our updated transition model, the Bayesian neural network, to be prepared for the next patient that would come in. And then the hope here is that if you find somebody who's similar to what you've observed in the past, it will be easier to update and optimize their hidden parameters and then get a quicker or more efficient and effective policy uh, downstream. And so.
0: So this sounds a bit related to contextual MDP, but that's a slightly different concept, right? Could you help us compare, contrast those two Concepts.
1: Yeah, it definitely does uh, sit within the same idea. Uh, you know, so I view contextual MDP as a specialized use case of uh, what you know. Thanks to current research, has been termed a generalized hidden parameter Markov decision process. Is that the contextual MDP has largely been used in multi-armed bandit settings um, where the reward is fixed. Uh, per task. And that specific context of the reward being fixed or the particular user being different is known uh, to the learning algorithm. Uh, and where the HIPMDP differs is that it doesn't assume that knowledge. It just observes that there's been a change. In, and and we assume in the construction of the HIPMDP that you will know when you are approached with a new task. And it's Upon the algorithm's job to figure out and learn a approximation for that context, and then, so this generalized hidden parameter Markov decision paper that I um, that I've referenced is from Christian Perez and Theophanis Karalatzos, uh, who were at Uber AI at the time, and it was uh, presented at AAAI this past winter.
0: So, can the um, can observables give us hints about the hidden parameters, like? Uh, The demographics of the patient maybe or are we assuming that we don't get any hints about these hidden parameters except for What happens with the transitions?
1: Yeah, so I think I think in practice uh, If if this were scaled and improved to be able to be used in a real setting is that demographics would absolutely be a part of that um, Contextual process of learning the underlying or hidden parameters that you can't observe, you know uh, the demographics you know, such as race or gender, um, you know, height, weight, age, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You could go down this list. Um, those, those things do help give some understanding or context, but there's still broad variance within these demographic groups. And, um, so I would view demographic information as a head start of, like, learning some actual physiological context. But uh, ultimately, it just has to be about the data, and it has to be about the observed transitions and how they respond to medication. And, um, you know, in in, in an ideal setting, that's how healthcare works, is that, you know, doctors come with their... uh, Training and their understanding of, uh, the, the medical literature as well as just the practice of medicine. But, uh, and they use that to inform their initial diagnoses and treatments. Uh, but they adjust and they adapt or at least the best ones do and, and they adapt in a hopefully compassionate way. And, and I think that's the way that we're trying to develop machine learning methods for is to have this built in at least conceptual understanding of a problem and uh develop a solution that adapts and you know this is might be overthinking it but in a compassionate way in a fair way uh in in a way that is equitable across the cross-section of the demographic
0: so you talked a little bit about how you um improved the the hip mdp solution and maybe the setting um with your first paper Uh, i wonder if you can could you walk us through kind of the set of mdp papers like what the different types of progress that was made in terms of both the setting and and this and the solution
1: yeah i am happy to do that so the um the original paper by finale and george just set up the problem and introduced the framework uh you know they they, their early work did bear some similarities uh to a few other prior pieces of literature that i'm kind of spacing on right now um, but it's very slow. Uh, like what they did was very slow and it couldn't scale to problems of higher than four dimensions. And, um, I kind of chuckle when I say that because we, in, in our updated paper, didn't look at anything greater than six dimensions, but, you know, we added two, two, uh, two factors of variation in, in the state space. But, uh, what we, um, what we did in that my first paper looking at hidden parameter Markov decision processes was you develop a scalable or at least uh, a functional approach to learning these uh, hidden parameters. Uh, and we did that by virtue of inference through a Bayesian neural network. What we found, or at least it was pretty apparent to us as we were doing that research, is that it was still computationally inefficient and really expensive because we would need to simulate thousands of episodes using that model in order to infer what those hidden parameters were and um, it it, you know it worked for what we were trying to do but there's no way that that approach would work in a real setting and uh, after I finished my master's degree I had to go back to work full time so I didn't get a chance to really participate in the next step of this but luckily uh, Finale had a brand new uh, PhD student start right at the same time I graduated, named Jia Yu Yao. And Jia Yu was fascinated by the idea uh, initially of the hip MDP and was interested in making it more computationally feasible uh, without needing to run you know thousands of simulated episodes of a of an environment in order to estimate these hidden parameters. And her idea. Um, was to distill the optimal policies from prior tasks into a generalized policy class. In the same way that we were distilling all the transition functions uh, into this learned Bayesian neural network that would be parameterized by these hidden parameters, um, which would give you the change of behavior. She says, oh, can we learn those hidden parameters uh, using our transition model, but we don't need to rely on that transition model being like absolutely correct. We just need it to be good enough to get us a stable set of hidden parameters and then use those hidden parameters to parameterize the policy class and then get the differentiated behavior in this you know general policy based on those hidden parameters. And um, unfortunately it was great work and it, it, it worked really well. But we have yet been able to convince reviewers that we did a good enough job. Um, But we did put the paper – oh, we didn't put the paper on archive yet. Uh, We we still have some things in the works to hopefully improve it, Um, looking at more of a theoretical bent. And Finale's had some undergraduate mathematics students looking at more of the theory behind – these hidden parameter Markov decision processes, and specifically with this direct policy transfer framework. Um, But we do have, like, I have a version of the paper that we presented at an ICML workshop two years ago um, on my website, Uh, and it has been cited by other researchers. Uh, And so at least it's making some contribution in that fashion.
0: This seems like it's going to be um, uh, huge, basically for for real world RL. I, I, I can't imagine it just being limited to healthcare setting. It seems like it would have touched everything.
1: Yeah, I have similar thoughts about it. I, I think that um, I I think that this approach to uh, adaptation and generalization in RL is really appealing. Uh, we see that with the meta learning. Um, community within RL that have been doing fantastic work, uh, looking at ways to do adaptation online, you know, as you are learning in a new task, can you adapt a, uh, policy class to work optimally? Um, however, I, 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 do stress at least in my own mind and thinking that, you know, meta learning and, and even my own work is fitting to, uh, single distribution is that it's really difficult to get any of these things to work outside of the observed uh, task class that you have in your training set. There has been some efforts in the meta-RL community looking at out-of-distribution adaptation, but I I haven't found any of the papers to be overly convincing. One additional limitation of our work is that we only looked at the transition of, uh, or or the the perturbation of the transition dynamics. Um, There is additional factors of variation in RL problem that you can account for. Uh, And this was the the major focus of the generalized hidden parameter uh, process or sorry the generalized hip paper uh from christian perez and his collaborators uh was that they factored the, the hidden parameters to account for different forms of variation. So variation in the reward structure, variation in the transition structure, and I think they had another factor variation, but it's escaping me right now. Um, and th- that has also been a feature of some additional follow on work. Uh, one, one particular paper that I have yet to read, but I've had, I've been in, a lot of discussions with Amy Zhang about who's the lead author on is that she took the HIP MDP framework along with the block MDP framework, which is something that she has inherited from John Langford and has been looking looking at on her own um, for quick adaptation, but then also um, synthesization of policies, and uh, you know that they're addressing different factors of variation that you might observe uh, among a family of tasks. So there, there, there's a lot of really exciting and fun work in, in the days to come of looking at uh, outside of a meta-RL perspective, because I'm, I'm still not overly convinced that it's the right approach because we're using a lot of computation to fit to the same distribution um, there. But uh, I, I think that the insights that we're gaining in that line of research is really informing uh, creative modeling strategies and approaches within a more traditional RL framework.
0: So it sounds like this area has a lot of potential and it's not fully solved yet.
1: Yeah, That's right. There's a lot that can be done. And I'm excited that there are a lot of researchers looking at it. I shouldn't say a lot. There's, there, there have been efforts in the, in the near past that uh, indicate that people are interested in this type of problem.
0: I'm going to move to another recent paper of yours, uh, Counterfactually Guided Policy Transfer in Clinical Settings. Uh, what's going on in this paper? You're, you're tackling domain shift in RL using causal models. Is that the idea?
1: Uh, I, I, that's the, the major technical direction of the paper. Um, I think it's a little easier to stomach by describing the motivation. And, uh, as I referenced earlier, uh, there is a lot to do in order to make models within machine learning and healthcare care uh, transferable uh, and generalizable between medical institutions and one of the major challenges uh, of this model transfer is that practices vary between hospitals the type of measurements that they take the type of instrumentation that they have at these different hospitals uh, confound the transfer problem but th- the major Confounding factor uh, that limits the ability to transfer models between hospitals is that um, you know the patient dis- the patient population is completely different and, and it can vary quite widely um, with various conditions or underlying um, uh, symptoms or at least sim- syndromes that that patient population has. You know you can think for example uh, like it, looking at the overall structure of what a transfer learning problem is, is that you'll have some source setting or source data set that you use to train your model from and you want to apply that somewhere else with minimal adaptation or some adaptation um, or no adaptation depending on uh, how confident you are. Uh, In the healthcare setting, uh, so that large source environment... Could feasibly be a research hospital in a large uh, urban environment where you do have some population diversity, but um, that that patient cohort that you might have in your data set will be pretty different from a regional uh, diabetes clinic, clinic for example, where. Um, you know, you might have had a minority of patients within your source setting that had diabetes, and you know their particular practice uh, and care taken to accommodate them. But when you go to a diabetes clinic, that's the majority of the population all of a sudden, and uh, you know this this patient population might also have skewed to be a bit older. Um, there might be other demographic uh, differences and without with blindly applying a model from a large research hospital to a regional clinic uh, you're going to miss a lot of that variation and as I said earlier, potentially do a lot of harm and uh, be overconfident in in the in the policy or the treatment strategy learned from the major hospital uh, when applying it to the smaller setting and uh, so that that was the primary motivation for our work is looking at a way to address this this form of domain shift uh, within the underlying data distribution, and we did this with a simulated uh, cohort of you know again simulated patients that had sepsis, and uh, the, one of the factors of variation that you could set in defining uh, these uh, you know, simulated patient cohorts is uh, the percentage or the proportion of that population that is diabetic. And uh, we used this simulator that was developed by David Sontag's group out of MIT and was featured in a, uh, a paper that uh, Michael Oberst and he published at ICML last summer. Um, and so we took their simulator and sort of built sort of a wrapper around it that allowed us to vary uh, the Proportion of patients within it uh, uh, as being more or less diabetic than the source environment, and then studied uh, algorithmic solutions or improvements uh, to some off-policy RL settings with counterfactual inference uh, to address this type of domain shift uh, just in the the patient population itself.
0: It seems like um, we're very so early on in combining. Uh, the causal models and the reinforcement learning side, and I think there's still s- some people still don't even think that that's important to do. Uh, but I think it's 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 really exciting to see you um, with one of the early papers in this in the in combining these two fields. Do you see this combination being a big deal going forward?
1: I do. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's that there's a really good history uh, of people. With, specifically within the healthcare context of machine learning research that have been looking at causal inference. Um, you know, r- r- professors that come to mind are, uh, you know, Suchi Saria, Susan Athey, um, you know, Susan Murphy being one, um, you know, and the list kind of goes on and on. You know, David Sontag has been looking at this. Elias barron has been looking specifically at the fundamental uh, theoretical underpinnings of reinforcement learning and causal inference and the connection between them. But, you, you know, I, I, I believe uh, quite ardently, actually, that uh, any future solution that we have for generalization within RL uh, needs to account for causal structure. Uh, especially in an off-policy or offline where you have a st- fixed data set, is that we need to learn a lot from our colleagues in the statistics department and uh, public health and epidemiology world uh, about how to do good causal inference. And, um, you know, I think Judea Pearl, um, Bernard Shulkov, uh you know, at all, have been doing a really good job. You know, Jonas Peters, sorry, that was the name that I was trying to say. You know, these three researchers, among all of the ones I've named, have been doing a really great job of introducing some of these concepts within machine learning, and now a lot of the effort is... You're drawing the coherent connections for usability. And, you know, is it feasible to um, make the assumptions that we do make uh, in, in order to make these things work? And, you know, I, people have their bones to pick uh, with the way that machine learning researchers use causal language and causal frameworks, and I, I think they're valid in um, raising those concerns. And it's it's upon us as a community who want to use these tools to listen and to learn. And that's been something that uh, Shawn Lee Joshi and I, uh, you know, my primary collaborator on this paper, and then as well as my advisor Majid um, we've been listening. And we've been talking with experts in this field to try to get a better sense of what we're doing right and what we could be doing better. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that it, it's an exciting future, assuming that we can be successful in scaling the approaches that we present in this paper that we're highlighting right now uh, to more realistic scenarios. Uh, right now, uh, most of the causal inference and reinforcement learning um, literature that, or at least the bridging between these two areas, um, has been f- in fixed uh, or discrete settings. Uh, I think that the only only work that's been done that has looked at slightly continuous settings has been with Susan Murphy's work, uh, uh, developing a monitor uh, and providing, uh, mobile interruptions to somebody's, uh, day, you know, wearing like a smartwatch, for example, like, Oh, Hey, you should get up and walk or, Oh, Hey, you know, uh, your heart rate's too high. Slow down. Like her, her project and sort of the, uh, the, you know, the fully funded study that she's been on is known as heart steps. Um, they're, they're probably one of the only, uh, projects or at least sets of research out there that's been looking outside of the more controllable discrete settings. Um, and I think that there's a lot of development that needs to be done both in the statistics side, but then also in the modeling side from a machine learning perspective about how to expand and adapt to more continuous and realistic settings. And that's actually some work that I'm quite excited to get started on um, you know later this
0: year. Awesome. Sounds like I have a lot of background reading to do. <laughs>
1: There's a lot that I don't understand yet and I'm trying uh, to learn from my collaborators who know know far more than I do.
0: I want to, to just add I, I love hard steps. I think Susan Murphy's work is, is so fascinating and I learned a lot from reading about that. Yeah. I want to move on to, uh, to talk more about mimic, mimic 3 and sepsis. Okay. So Mimic 3 and the sepsis problem seems to come up a lot uh, in ML for Health. I think you made a comment that It's kind of like the uh, MNIST for 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 ML for health, and uh, so I understand this is ICU data um, from a teaching hospital. Um, Is that right? Can you tell us more about the the problem and the and the data set?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, so the data is collected from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, uh, which is part of the Harvard Medical School. you know, the system of teaching hospitals and research hospitals. Um, so, Leo Selly and his collaborators at MIT um, thought, you know, we have this really rich data set of electronic medical records that we can use to inform better decision making, but then also improve medical practice. And, you know, so Leo is a practicing acute care doctor um, and saw within his own workplace you know in the intensive care unit the potential benefits for developing this type of data or data set to be used by the community and they've gone through substantial efforts to privatize it to clean it and to present it to be used um by anybody as long as they go through adequate ethics training and they follow the protocols uh this, this defined by the the consortium that has Uh, hosted and also, uh, prepared the data set for use. Um, they actually have just finished a new version of Mimic, uh, so version four, and it's being rolled out, um, this summer, uh, to include and in, in, a much larger set of patients. Uh, Another improvement to the data is they now have chest x-rays fully integrated for all the patients that have them. Uh, They have uh, improved or increased uh, availability of the notes from doctors and clinical teams. Uh, and, And another thing that Uh, some of my colleagues are quite excited about is that they also are including uh, pharmacology and um, medication reports, which has been something that they haven't had historically within the MIMIC data set. And why MIMIC and why sepsis, um, or at least why that has become sort of this focus, is that sepsis is a really poorly understood problem. So it has a lot of potential gains But it also introduces a lot of difficulty where – You know, we fall into the trap as machine learning researchers saying, we've solved it, we've done it. But uh, a doctor looks at the solution and says, oh, we knew all that already. Um, It's just a harder problem than you thought. Why it's been used so widely within the machine learning for healthcare community is one, the availability of MIMIC, but it also is one of the conditions within the hospital that gets really dedicated monitoring. And so there is a richness to the data that's there, as well as the, uh, like, consistent Measurements, and so you don't have as much missingness or at least uh, unobserved information about a patient, such as their heart rate or their respiratory rate, uh, you know, their blood levels. Uh, you, you, the list goes on and on as you consider the vitals, um, because these patients are at the most danger of dying uh, within the hospital. In fact, sepsis is one of the leading causes of in hospital death, and uh, sepsis itself isn't a uh, you know, diagnosable condition, but it is a umbrella term for large-scale systemic shutdown of a body's organ in response to infection and pain. And so sepsis can be detected by a a variety of measures, uh, one of which being rising lactic acid levels within the blood, uh, which is a, a, a physiological response that our bodies have to infection and pain. Uh, and and it, it can be manifest in multiple different ways. And so if you have access to the MIMIC data set and the notes, uh, you look through the patient cohort who have sepsis. Uh, and unfortunately or sadly, those that succumb to their sepsis, uh, there's a variety of... Uh, you know, scenarios or conditions uh, that may lead to a patient becoming septic. Uh, you know, uh, you know the, the ones that stick out to me is a uh, uh, individual had surgery after an accident. Their um, their sutures got infected and that infected their blood and you know they became septic. Uh, another. Particular patient I have in mind uh, got infected from chemotherapy, uh, and uh, you know, like these these are really rare and unsettling situations. That when you look at aggregate or in aggregate at the this hospital data, is that they pop up, and it's uh, it, it's it's not a happy time to read uh, case reports about somebody who passed away, um, and it's even more difficult when you you look at the clinical decisions that have been made and you say, oh, you know, in retrospect, they could have seen this and they could have changed that. And uh, um, Zied Obermeyer has a really nice um, way of describing this phenomenon is that in retrospect, we can be the best at anything. Uh, the challenge is diagnosing or at least identifying the signal as it's happening or even better before it happens. And I think that that is the large um large motivation behind a lot of the machine learning for healthcare research, but in particular, solving the sepsis problem is only one really small piece of, uh, you know, this overall healthcare puzzle that we have. It just happens that, you know, thanks to the efforts of, uh, you know, the the MIMIC team, we have this data set available, and it's... Uh, unfortunately influenced a lot of larger data collection practices is that uh so like recently uh, a team in europe uh just published a large health data set for intensive care but it's focused on sepsis or um you know when we talk to our clinical collaborators at local hospitals here in toronto um they kind of back away because they're like, oh, we don't have the data to support sepsis. And we're like, no, 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 we don't want to focus on sepsis. We want to focus on the problems that you're facing, but we're going to benchmark against this sepsis uh, condition in this open data set. And you know, once we have those types of conversations with our clinical collaborators, I think that, uh, one, we learn uh, what they're really interested in, and two, uh, they see the limitations of, uh, you know, current practice within machine learning. And uh, it's, it, it helps kind of bring us to equal terms where they see that you know, the problem hasn't been solved. And we're not just there to be engineers, but we're there to help them in actual clinical research, which opens a lot of really great partnerships and doors uh, when you uh, have this common understanding.
0: So from my brief readings, I only ever encounter uh, the phrase mimic three in the context of sepsis. But is Mimic3 really all about sepsis or is it a much broader data set?
1: It's, it's definitely a broader data set. It, like, like I was sort of saying, because of the frequency of records for a septic patient, it makes it an easier problem to, to look at. Um, and the the community has defined really good data extraction um, code to pull out the sepsis patients. But there there's a large variety of uh, conditions and people within the Mimic dataset, but all constrained to uh, the intensive care unit, and so it's it's uh, acute care and uh, the challenges that come with that. You know, given that you know, these are short timelines, uh, these are people in very dire circumstances, and some of the recording for these patients is quite sporadic because of that. You know, doctors are working feverishly to treat and care for people who are on the brink of uh, of dying. And and so uh, sepsis has become a little bit easier because it, it, it has very systematic protocols of measuring and monitoring the patients. And so I think that's just why the majority of the, the papers that we see from the community that use MIMIC uh, utilize the, the sepsis framework but uh, that that doesn't mean that you don't use this data if you're interested in uh, in in solving something else so the the mechanical ventilation weaning paper from Niranjani Prasad that I referenced earlier that looks at the septic cohort but they don't look at treating sepsis right they're looking at a, a sub problem uh, within that cohort uh, but uh, I I um, I am aware of research of people looking at the same septic cohort to do diabetes management and recognition within a clinical setting. Um, you know, there's mental health type research that has been done, um, with, like, within the context of, uh, sort of the, the mimic or septic cohort. As well, right? Like there's a lot of interesting parallels that can be drawn within the data that doesn't focus on sepsis, but uh, at its core, I think the most low-hanging fruit of the problem, just given data availability, is the septic cohort.
0: So when we look at, um, say when deep RL first started with Atari and how dqn did with with atari back then and and how agents today are doing like with agent 57 and mu zero some people are saying or i I sometimes wonder you know have we solved atari Is atari just solved it's not that useful anymore how how would you comment in terms of where we are on that journey with with mimic 3 and sepsis i I guess we're away a long, long ways are we a long ways from from solving it what would it mean to solve this this problem
1: yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, you know, to be completely honest, I don't know if, if it's possible clinically to describe a solution. Like, you know, is, is a solution, like with the, the language that you, we're used to using, you know, is a solution something that is attainable? And I, I think that there's always going to be some context driven. Exception to any one clinical practice, um, given uh, the patient characteristics, the you know, situation at hand, right? So, what we've seen, or at least there was there, there have been some published medical papers from China looking at the coronavirus pandemic, and a hundred percent of the patients who died in their hospitals were observed to be septic, whereas those that recovered. Um, how many, it was like 40 to 60% were septic at one point. Right. So like it, wow. it, it takes on different contexts and form, uh, because if you're treating a patient in in the hospital currently with, uh, you know, the COVID-19 virus, the sepsis is going to be a factor that you consider, but largely you're just focused on treating the current symptoms of, of the virus. Um, and, and so that it, it largely changes, I think, the, the, the texture of the problem. And um, you, there, there have been efforts to make generalizable deep RL solutions to the septic, septic problem, and I think that they're ill-guided um, in, in a lot of ways. And I don't want to really delve too deeply into them because I really respect the effort and the researchers who, who did this, you know, so this is Anirudh Raghu's paper, uh, or a set of papers from, you know, 2017, 2018. And, and then the AI clinician paper that was published in nature medicine in 2018. Mm. Um, it, it, like they did great work introducing deep RL into the question, at least getting the attention of the reinforcement learning community looking at sepsis. Um, but I think that we do ourselves a disservice uh, when we take a traditionalist RL approach to healthcare. And I think that's what a lot of uh, people have been trying to do by applying a deep Q network um, just to learn optimal action selection strategies and you know uh, finale doshi velez omer godesman who was one of her uh, now graduated students wrote this really great opinion piece for nature medicine giving guidelines of using reinforcement learning in healthcare, and they identify all of the pitfalls of using a traditionalist approach uh, for this fixed health data set um, and i all of this is to say, I don't know what a solution looks like, uh, especially without running clinical trials. You know, I think that in the best um, best world or the best case scenario, uh, we convince either the NIH or some other health regulation body. That we have done a good enough job, and I hope that we would feel confident and assured that we've done a good enough job capturing all of these factors of variation um, in medical practice uh, that we could run a full clinical trial. Uh, like, we cannot assume that we've solved anything in healthcare or really in the real world without actually experimenting. And uh, that's really dangerous territory for machine learning within healthcare is that uh, we need to be sure that there are uh, reversible decisions uh, in case our models are wrong. And uh, the current status of a lot of this is that we are not there and we're nowhere close. Uh, Part of my motivation of coming to Toronto is that there are doctors here who are willing to work with us to develop uh, clinical trials for algorithmically driven decision tools. Not for full treatment, uh, that would preclude a solution to the sepsis problem, but might help us in a smaller a smaller problem that will free up the doctor's mental capacity and time to be a little bit more attentive to their patients or provide uh, opportunity to develop new or novel treatment solutions. And that is the goal that I think is realizable within the next five to 10 years, depending on the use case and depending on the problem. Um, For for example, there is a group here in Toronto at the Children's Hospital that is looking at triage um, for the children patients that come in of identifying uh, the right wings or departments in the hospital to to put them in and that itself is a reinforcement learning problem uh, as that you want to look at the long-term effects or outcomes of that initial triage decision that's being made um and that is some exciting work that uh some colleagues of mine are getting started on and and i think that that is a really feasible or at least uh ethical approach to uh trying to develop some algorithmic aid for a healthcare setting. When it comes down to, you know, health and recovery, I get a little nervous about thinking that we're close or even putting a prediction of how close we may be. But I think that we're hopefully getting there uh, within my lifetime. Uh, and I am excited to be a part of the, the efforts to at least make that somewhat realizable.
0: I'm glad you raised uh AI clinician and, and there's quite a bit of back and forth about uh, about how close we were to using a, a solution like that and and uh, critiques about handling uncertainty
1: yeah I think that the criti- like the the criticisms of that work are both fair and unfair uh, I think there's some sour grapes by some of the critics of that work because they wanted to be the first to do this um, but I think a lot of their their criticisms about modeling uncertainty and the sort of the robustness of the approach as well as, like I mean, even the types of treatments that the AI clinician suggested are very, very severe and very risky. Um, And I I think that that is the large challenge with uh, doing RL in healthcare is that um, you kind of get fixated or at least the agents get fixated on you know the the actions that cause the most change and um you know devolve into suggesting those really serious actions uh immediately when they're not necessary and so uh that's been something that we've been trying to diagnose in some of this work that i i I alluded to with medifatami is you know why is it choosing those types of actions and can we uh identify when those actions are useful or when those actions are potentially detrimental.
0: So you presented a workshop spotlight um, related to this topic uh, entitled Learning Representations for Prediction of Next Patient State at the ACM Conference on Health Inference and Learning 2020. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so uh, th- this this uh, this this conference is brand new. Uh, it was headed up by my advisor Marzia, and her close collaborators. Um, and the 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 reason why I'm sort of prefacing this is that I just want to say that we do have probably the coolest conference acronym out there, uh, Chill, right? And so we're we're uh, I I tried to with you know no success to uh, convince Merzia to contact netflix to get a sponsorship and so that we and like this is especially because ben and jerry's now has a ice cream flavor netflix and chilled right so it just it would have been fantastic to have that you know we we don't have to take ourselves overly seriously all the time um so but uh this this paper that i you know um Presented as a workshop spotlight, uh, was looking at the way that within sort of the sequential framework of decision making in healthcare. You know, what's the right way to learn a representation? Uh, a lot of reinforcement learning methods in healthcare just take the data in a isolated sequence uh, and just say like, okay, well, this is time step t. We have all of these observations. We'll just use that data as raw input into our agent. Um, that is fine, and it's worked well, you know, given the the results that we do have in the literature. But it's not necessarily realistic because a clinician will use some historical understanding of the uh, you know a patient's you know um, blood pressure, for example, in providing some treatment. Um, and there have only been two papers in the literature, at least that I'm aware of, that have done any sort of recurrent modeling to construct a, you know, time dependent history, uh, you know, in, in sort of a hidden state of what the patient condition is. And um, even then, those two papers just sort of blindly use a uh, recurrent neural network and there hasn't been a systematic or rigorous uh, study on what the appropriate representation is for a patient. Uh, And so what our work was trying to to do, uh, and we're hoping to get this up on archive within the next couple months, uh, just because you know, we got good comments from you know a failed submission of this paper to a conference this summer uh, of where to improve it, and we're going to do that. But what we did is we took several different models that would embed uh, in a recurrent fashion sequential observations, and then diagnose or at least investigated what those representations look like and what they allow us to do. And the auxiliary task that we use with these representations is in predicting the next observation. So given a sequence up to time t, can you predict the observation of your time-varying vitals in the patient at time t plus 1? And uh, what we wanted to make sure we did when learning these representations was ensure, at least constrain the representation learning to be clinically meaningful. Um, so rather than just learn some latent variable that, you know, happens to achieve good accuracy on your, your test setting, we want it to at least maintain some semantically meaningful uh, information. And, and so what we did is we constrained the learning process uh, by making sure that the, the Pearson correlation with the learned representation and the you know, known and measured acuity scores, which are just a measure of how severe a patient condition is, uh, we, we wanted to maximize that correlation uh, while learning these representations. And what we were able to find, you know, this is just sort of a analysis study. We're not developing any new model. We're not presenting any new way of doing these embeddings. But by learning these representations with this constraining process is that you uh, the simpler RNN-based methods are able to more or less uh, separate out the types of patients that we would see, right? Patients that survive who have less severe uh, conditions versus those that have more severe conditions and who do ultimately succumb to their their treatment or or to their symptoms. Uh, And why this is important is that if we're thinking about applying uh, reinforcement learning uh, agent to these learned representations. Uh, we want to kind of help maintain some of this clinically meaningful information, but then also give it some head start. And seeing that it, uh, these representations are separable uh, between the two patient cohorts, um, we're, we're, we're we're excited to start applying uh, learned policies to this type of uh, learned representation from. And so, I'll, you know, this workshop Spotlight that uh, I did, as well as the paper that we're going to be uh, publishing, or at least putting on the archive server soon, as um, just largely a first step at, at saying, "Hey, you know, all of this state construction business that we've been doing, in, you know, RL for healthcare, you know, much less machine learning for healthcare, is probably not." Well informed, uh, and we can do better, and, and and so that's just starting trying to start this conversation of you know what's the appropriate way to represent a patient condition um, given sequential observations, and how can we use that to do better reinforcement learning downstream.
0: So you've developed these you know uh, a range of innovative solutions for using RL in these clinical settings. Um, can you say more about what that path would be? To, to getting them out there to helping real people? Like, would, would this, is this decades away? Is it going to be around the corner? What does the path look like?
1: Yeah, so in, in terms of reinforcement learning, I think we've got uh, quite a ways to go. Um, but in terms of, um, I, I would, you know, I probably am not speaking perfectly precisely here, but, you know, a lot of these standard or more traditional machine learning approaches, um, you know, we have, evidence of them working really well in some healthcare settings. And those have been in direct collaboration with clinicians and hospitals. You know, so there's Kat Heller, uh, who's now at Google, but was at Duke. She and her students were able to develop a really great, um, sort of causal inference-based solution to managing patients in the hospital. Um, so Brett Nestor, who is a student with me at University of Toronto, um, he's been working with St. Michael's Hospital here in Toronto about uh, developing uh, prediction methods uh, over, you know, in... Um, you know, the general internal medicine department, uh, can you predict whether or not a patient will need to be transferred to the intensive care unit? Because that is a very difficult process that takes a lot of coordination. And if they can know a day in advance that somebody's going to be coming to the ICU, they can make that transition better and maintain the patient health. Uh, much easier in that transition to the intensive care unit. Uh, another further example has been, uh, you know, Susan Murphy's work where she's probably the only researcher, um, that has had a, like, actual clinical trial with machine learning approaches uh, under the hood. Uh, Suchi Saria has been working at this, but in each one of these cases of these success stories with uh, uh, applying machine learning to healthcare in practice and production is that it's always been in collaboration is that we, like I said earlier, we can't operate in a vacuum um, within healthcare and by having, you know, invested clinicians who understand, uh, you know, the the, the methodology um, is really important. And, you know, there are some really great uh, doctors and radiologists that uh, we're affiliated with um, and collaborate with that are helping us always see the big picture of what they're doing and so specifically I'm talking about Judy Kachoya who's at Emory Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia and then Luke Oakden Rader who's based out of Australia. Um, They are really great critics of everything that's being done um, to make sure that we're doing it in an appropriate fashion and um, you know I have uh, friends and colleagues out of Harvard Medical School who are constantly helping us uh, remember that you know that there is uh, understood practice um, when we approach um, making strides in you know technology within healthcare, but th- th- it needs to be motivated and and informed by what can actually be done.
0: So there's there's good reasons why. Uh, Probably the medical establishment doesn't really follow the philosophy of move fast and break things, which is maybe. (laughs) I I think
1: there's good reasons why there's probably some (laughs) bad reasons why, too, if we're going to be completely honest. (laughs) Um, the, um, the, The challenge with regulation boards is that they're humans right and these humans are also doctors that have their own individual biases and preferences and you know it's it's a reality that we need to deal with and it's upon us as researchers to convince them that we are being careful and that we're thinking through the challenges that they care about too and, and so it's uh you know it, it this is this is kind of the excitement of being at the leading edge of any type of problem in any type of industry is that you get to um, you get to develop a lot of patience but you also learn a lot in, in, in the same frame and, and I think that that's why we're here uh, on earth in general is to develop and learn and to to, to become better versions of ourselves and, and I think that when we work interdisciplinary or in in, in let me correct when we work in interdisciplinary settings, um, we are exposed to more opportunities to improve ourselves.
0: Taylor, do you have any comments on other things that are happening um, in the world of RL that you find really interesting or important these days outside of your own work?
1: Um, there's a lot, and I feel like I've probably taken too much time to describe like feelings that I have and thoughts I have. Um, one really quick thing that I'm excited about is that I am really grateful that there has been an added interest in applying reinforcement learning to the real world, and with the challenges in modeling and uh, you know architecture and learning that comes with that. And so I think that we're I wouldn't say we're in a renaissance yet of offline RL, but I think that what we're seeing coming from various groups and labs throughout the world, is that there is a dedicated interest in making these things work in the real world. And, um, you know, there are some success stories that I've been made aware of that I I know are not public, where reinforcement learning has actually been used in the real world to great effect and done so in a robust and stable and safe manner. And um, I think it's it's really exciting to envision or at least hypothesize uh, how much more progress we're going to be making in the near term.
0: Taylor Killian, this has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for giving us a window into your your really important and fascinating work that you've been doing. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: You know, I appreciate the invitation. I think that what you do with this podcast is fascinating and that you balance between young researchers as well as established experts. And I think that, uh, you know, speaking as, a, uh, you know, consumer of your podcast but now as a guest is that i really appreciate that balance because uh, i think that it's important for young and new ideas to get exposure as well as to um, just just to get the experience to be out there and so i'm really grateful for the opportunity
0: Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRL Podcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better.